You're listening to episode 70 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Today's guest is Radhika Kumaraswamy. Radhika is a Sri Lankan lawyer, diplomat and human rights advocate. She has held a range of appointments within the United Nations, including as Special Representative for Children and Armed Conflict from 2006 to 2012, as lead author on a global study into women, peace and security in 2014, and most recently as a member in the United Nations fact-finding mission to Myanmar following atrocities committed against the Rohingya. Radhika was a keynote speaker at the recent Australasian Aid Conference hosted by the Development Policy Centre and the Asia Foundation on the Women, Peace and Security agenda, which we'll discuss in this episode. It was an incredibly powerful speech and we'll also include a link to it in the show notes. Radhika and I talk about her experience growing up in Sri Lanka, including her reflections on having Indian independence leader Mahatma Gandhi as a family friend. We then talk about violence against women as a toxic expression of power and how the continued use of gender-based violence as part of conflict and war has shaped the women, peace and security agenda. It's a critical agenda, but Radhika argues that it's also one that needs reform. In her words, it needs to get real. Radhika has visited every war zone in recent history and she reflects on her recent experiences in Myanmar and her conversation with the Rohingya. She also talks about the fears of the Buddhist population and attempts to decipher the social and cultural factors that enable a genocide. Ultimately, this episode gets to the heart of fear, oppression and intolerance and how it impacts on the safety and security of all people, but especially women. Before we go to the episode, you may recall I've been promoting the PNG update and the Pacific update later this year. Given the COVID-19 pandemic, the Development Policy Centre has had to cancel those updates. As soon as new dates are announced, I'll let you know. Meanwhile, if you're interested in what you hear in this episode, check out the devpolicy.org blog where you'll find heaps of materials on women, peace and security, and many other cutting-edge international and regional aid and development topics. Subscribe to their daily email or fortnightly digest at devpolicy.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback and we'd love to know what you most enjoyed about it. You can email me at rachel at goodwillhunterspodcast.com.au or get in touch via our social media channels. Okay, enjoy the episode. Radhika, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, we are at the Australasian Aid Conference and you gave your keynote address this morning and you were saying to me before we started that you were surprised at the turnout, but I wasn't surprised because you're a bit of a legend in this sector and so many people were eager to hear you. Now, you've had an illustrious humanitarian career. Before we get into some of your work, how did your childhood in Sri Lanka shape the career that you now have? Well, I think it's very important um uh, to remember that because my childhood, uh, I had an uncle who worked with Mahatma Gandhi and was very close to Gandhi. Uh, and actually, when Gandhi came to Sri Lanka, he stayed at our house, which was a sort of extended family in Jaffna. Though I live in Colombo, the family house was in Jaffna. Uh, and so I learned a lot about Gandhism. So human rights and humanism and all those things came to me not through what people call Western concepts or Western ideas, but it came to me through Gandhi and Gandhian ideas first. And then later on, I went on to the United States because my father got a job at the United Nations. The other thing about Sri Lanka that was very influential in my life before I went and then when I, after I came back and worked there for about 30 years before I joined the UN again was the Sri Lankan Civil War 
which I worked at the International Center for Ethnic Studies. So all the ideas of inclusivity, pluralism, um, suffering of war, uh, the need to end war, um, peace movement, uh, all that was also very, very important to me in my life. And I think uh, when I joined the UN, those all overflowed. That's really interesting. And your reference to Gandhi is really interesting as well. What sort of reflections did your family, was it your uncle? Grand-uncle. Your granduncle, what sort of reflections did he have on Gandhi? Well, you know, that was the time of Indian independence. And, you know, he could have fought it the way other people have fought it by being very confrontational, even violent. Uh, he could have fought it by being exclusive, uh, separating groups. But he decided to fight it through nonviolence uh, and making nonviolence a whole strategic way of dealing with put your demands forward. Um, and he influenced Martin Luther King and he influenced Nelson Mandela, all these people through his sort of creative ways of disobedience. Uh, for example, when the British in, in, in inflicted a very unfair salt tax, he led a huge march to the sea and they took the salt out of the sea. You know, nobody really can live off the salt of the sea, but still it's the, the imaginative act that he did. He... Uh, he tried to revive local industry. So, and also, he was so respected that once when the riots broke out in Bengal between Hindus and Muslims, he threatened to fast on to death. And actually, the riots stopped. Later on, they didn't. It's 1947, and it was a terrible. But the power of moral voice in politics, that's what he taught me, I think, that politics almost always must have a moral voice. It shouldn't just be about deal-making. Uh, today, it's about deal-making, a lot of public relations. Uh, but he was very much for politics with a moral voice. Mm, it can be so hard to find that moral voice sometimes in modern politics. Yes. Now, you were the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women from 1994 to 2003. What did you learn about violence against women during that time? Well, I think I learned uh, that um, it's rooted often in concepts of power, uh, and it's a really an expression of power over, over women. Uh, whether it's in the home to show who is boss often, whether it's on the field in armed conflict, sometimes rape is really a tool of intimidation and terror. So that link between violence against women and power, I think, is something I learned, that it's just not spontaneous all the time. Sometimes it is, perhaps, but mostly it's about power, the assertion of power over women by men. The second thing I learned is things are not that easy with the women victim. You know, we all thought we'd fight these terribly oppressive men and then take the women away. That was really not what many of them wanted. Um, they wanted their home, security, children, and they just wanted the law to step in and, and tell this man to behave properly. Of course, not the extreme sort of horrible kind of uh, sadistic men. But the, uh, but the uh, normal, um, uh, not normal, but shall we say people who are not sadistic but tend to, be, tend to act because of wanting to constantly assert power over their women, those men, they wanted the judges to tell off. 
And a lot of research now shows that we have to find creative ways uh, in dealing with uh, how we, it can't lead to separation and divorce all the time. There have to sometimes be other ways of dealing with this situation for women to be happy with. I think that's a really important point, and, and we've been having some conversations recently around how feminism doesn't mean the same thing to everyone and what one group of women somewhere in the world want and perceive to be good isn't what another group of women actually want. And it really speaks to the importance of understanding, well, not just understanding, but actually allowing women to lead in their own development and empowerment. Well, this is very true because the priorities are different, the conditions are different. And, you know, there's a whole series of post-colonial writing which challenges basically the feminist movement that made all these changes for us in the area of violence against women, saying they took the language away from economic exploitation, which they felt was much more important for women of the South. Uh, economic situation, whether it's exploitation or household or livelihoods or survival, so for them, many people, that is the main struggle. Um, not so much uh, equal rights in legal terms or violence against women per se. Um, so there have been a lot of debates within the feminist movement of what are the priorities and what one should pursue, and a lot will depend on your context and situation. Now, you are uh, here at the Australasian Aid Conference speaking about women, peace, and security. For those of our listeners who don't share your expertise in this area, which I'd say is almost all of us. Can you begin by outlining the history of women, peace and security and, and what that agenda entails? Well, really, a lot happened in the international world because of the wars in Bosnia and Rwanda. It was the first time, really, with modern telecommunications and modern television. And so these wars would come to people's living rooms and just mortified at the, what was going on. Um, so there was really a very strong international women's movement called uh, Women's Justice Caucus that was built up. Its main purpose was to lobby for the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which would have strong sections on sexual violence because traditional international criminal law did not have strong sections on sexual violence, and also women, peace, and security which would deal with sexual violence, but also women's, because what happened in Dayton, for example, after Bosnia, there were no women at the table, no discussions of issues important to women. So not only violence, sexual violence, but also women's representation at the table, uh, at the negotiating table, uh, also issues of economic re recovery, uh, prevention of conflict, all this whole array of issues uh, 1325 brought to the fore. Uh, and it's been in operation now for 20 years. Uh, and you must realize that it's at the Security Council. Until the wars in Bosnia and Rwanda, the Security Council refused to look at human rights or women's rights or anything to do with rights. They felt their duty was to just prevent wars, or not prevent, but actually once wars break out to kind of try and mend the situation. They did not have a rights framework at all. Uh, but 1325... Uh, and, and there was also one on children, and they developed an interest in three areas, sexual, sexual, uh, women in armed uh, security, women, peace, and security, children in armed conflict, and the protection of civilians. So in those areas, they brought in a human rights and women's rights frame uh, to look at these issues. 
so to, uh, it's a big, big move in 2001 uh, when they decided to recognize this as a thematic issue that they would be seized of. That's really interesting because I, I suppose it's not a static thing. Like the experience of women in violence and in war zones evolves just as technology evolves and just as global contexts evolve. And I guess that's the big challenge with law, right, is that law is written at one point in time, but the law needs to continue to evolve to match the emerging challenges that are faced by women. How well do you think that is going? Well, you know, perfect example is is uh, the recent conflict with the Rohingyas and the whole situation in Myanmar. A lot of the violence inflicted and even the violence done by the small rebel group was enabled by WhatsApp and Facebook. They communicated through those. And that's why violence was swift and so so emotional and effective. Uh and I think nobody realized the power of these uh, modern social media and tools in engendering violence. We know that it's also true in, in extremism uh, cases uh, and, you know, filming yourself while, while killing people and all this. Is, this is a whole new area uh, uh, in, with regard to violence. Uh, the social media as the hate speech, as uh, as something that also uh, forces people to witness violence. All this, I think, is something that we're, it's way ahead of us and we're still ca- trying to catch up on trying to regulate it. How do we deal with it? How do we also not make sure in one country, I know they decided to deal with hate speech, but ended up really uh, shutting down all the uh, sites that were challenging the government, democratic sites. So you have to know the context to know what is hate, what is legitimate dissent. So the, the issues are quite, quite difficult. Incredibly complex. You did make reference there to Myanmar, which we might come back to. But speaking about the global south generally, you have said in the Women, Peace and Security agenda um, that the agenda has many detractors within the global south. Um, who state that it's losing touch with the day-to-day realities of women in conflict and post-conflict theatres of war. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I think to some extent, you know, we had 1325 where everybody was united around the world, you know, because it, it had all aspects, economic recovery, sexual violence, representation. Now, over time, the agenda seems to be very much focused first on sexual violence, now on representation of women in uh, in peace processes, in the military, uh, etc. While in the South, they're pushing for much more emphasis on economic livelihoods, economic recovery, vulnerable groups such as women combatants, IDPs, refugees. So there's a whole different perspective from the South. Also, there's been this enormous, after counterterrorism also, this... Uh, women, peace, and security's ambivalent position on where it stands in this whole issue of ex- fighting extremism and counterterrorism. Um, some people trying to push it into being supportive of counterterrorism, while others, while this global South feminists say, we can't be supportive of counterterrorism or violent extremism. You know, we should be peace builders who try to bridge the gap. So all these kinds of issues are, are being uh, raised and differences of opinion. 
Um, and I think maybe this is the year where a lot of that can be resolved with the new resolution that's coming up uh, at the end in September, for 20 years after um, 1325 was passed. Uh, there will be a big resolution passed uh, toward the end of this year. And so hopefully there some of these issues can be resolved. That's that's really optimistic. <laughs> what, what is the nature of the new resolution? I mean, I'm not sure how much I, you I can don't talk know about what it. is finally going to be in it, but I think some of the emphasis on economic, some of the concerns that the global South has on economic, especially on economic recovery and livelihoods, perhaps, uh, could be addressed. Now, for example, one example of differences is perhaps with regard to the uh, military. Uh, as you know, uh, the the um, Northern countries are very, very keen on pushing women into the military uh, and making sure that they're there. 50% of the military, they say, should be women, which, of course, makes sense when you have militaries in democracies. But where militaries are of a completely different nature, uh, as they are in many countries of South, South and Southeast Asia, then pushing women into the militaries can make doesn't sit well with civil society. So that's where you know there are quite a lot of differences of opinion as to the strategy that should be followed. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, again, it comes back to this: the importance of recognizing how cultural feminism is, and how our ideas of what's best for women and what empowers women differs so much between countries. And as you say. In a country that's not democratic, forcing women into the military is never going to canvas the support of civil society. And yet, in a country such as Australia, increasing female representation in our military is almost, you know, unequivocally a good thing. Mm-hmm. How do we manage that? Well, you know, we have to just remember difference. You know, um, a powerful movement like a powerful country is one that acknowledges its differences and has room for that you know, and embraces it and says, look, you know, your context is different. We can understand your strategies being different rather than trying to force one norm on everyone. But there are, you know, as much as there are differences, we must realize that in the last 40 years, women have come together and united uh, very much across all ethnicities and countries around important issues. CEDAW, for example. Then you have the whole violence against women movement coming out of the Human Rights Conference, which is very, you know, I was there, women who were uh, interested in trafficking from Southeast Asia to northern women fighting domestic violence. Uh, there were women in Bosnia and others fighting violence in conflict. There are women in South Africa fighting rape. I mean, Poland, trafficking, all coming together. Uh, and uniting. And I remember when the first uh, special rapporteur, which, I mean, I was appointed, the, uh, the resolution to pass, a re- uh, to have a special rapporteur, not the person, uh, there was actually ovation in the Human Rights Council, a uh, unanimous ovation, which is very unusual in any UN body to have ovations. But to decide, the Human Rights Council deciding to have someone on a special rapporteur on that was was uh, considered a very uh, big thing and united everybody, Russia, China, everyone. So uh, there have been really great highs. There have been moments of great unity, but there have been moments of difference as well. And we should acknowledge those differences and work with them rather than pretend they don't exist. That must have been really amazing that day in the 
in the Human Rights Council when when it was unanimously decided that there would be a special rapporteur. That would have been a really uh, momentous occasion in your life, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. That that was a momentous occasion. But I was not there. It was when the resolution was passed to appoint one. And then I was appointed afterwards. But I was told that it was a standing ovation. <laughs> That's really interesting. You've mentioned there that a new resolution is uh, coming out later this year. What do you think the future for women, peace and security looks like? What trends should we expect to see in the coming years? Well, I think there will continue to be a focus to make women participate in peace processes. I think that unites people in the North and the South to make sure that women are there. How we do it may be different. Uh, I think in the South, there's a belief it should be uh, from uh, bottom up, while in the North, it's a belief that the mediators should play a big role in deciding who. So I think, uh, but that will be a focus, I'm sure. Uh, But I think uh, there will be new uh, how to deal with this whole issue of violent extremism and counterterrorism and how do women locate themselves in this struggle. That also is something that we still have to uh, deal with and come up with. And then also how we deal with issues of economic recovery and livelihoods in a more sustainable way, not make everybody a tailor and a mechanic, which is what we seem to be doing now. That's a really interesting observation. When you're talking about economic recovery and livelihoods, is that sort of the response of the development community in the wake of a a crisis? Well, you know, I've been to every war zone, and in every war zone, the same actors are involved in uh, providing livelihoods. And in every war zone, they're either tailors or motor mechanics. Beauty, that's a new thing that's come out in the last 10 years. So you have places where people were former uh, fighters, women fighters, and they're now suddenly uh, become beauticians and uh, all this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I don't know. Uh, recently, though, they have begun to introduce things with access to technology and computers and things like that. It's more costly, but that's the way to go. You know, that's the way you, that's the way you jettison poverty. You no, know? you can't get, come give them the technology with, with which they can uh, uh, come into the modern world. You know, everybody can cannot. Uh, there's not enough of a market for everybody to be making handicrafts. And I see so many handicrafts. Um, you mentioned there that you visited every war zone, and uh, I know you also recently um, were involved in the the UN fact-finding mission to Myanmar regarding the Rohingya. I know that you're very familiar with that situation, so it would be interesting to first get your reflections on, on what you saw there and what that fact-finding mission involved. Well, strangely, when uh, all of us went there, three of us, Krista Doty, our chairman, Mazuki Darusman, I think uh, there was a real um, unwillingness to think that anything that terrible really happened because all of us were fans of Aung San Suu Kyi. We were of age in our 60s, early 60s, and she was the icon of our youth. So we so it we didn't go there with any notion that anything terrible really must have happened. But then it unraveled. We went there and we went to Cox Bazaar, and I think we were just flabbergasted. I was just mortified. Since Rwanda, I'd never seen anything so terrible because I was talking to the 
victims of sexual violence, the marks. And, you know, they were not making it up because this is, we went just weeks after the, so there was no time for anyone to coach them or, you know, so they were just covered in various marks and harrowing stories of gang rape and children also being killed. And I must say, I was, uh, the sheer horror of it really surprised us. And the sheer refusal of Myanmar to even acknowledge that things may have happened, to put itself on, on a pathway toward dealing with it, instead playing to the gallery or playing up anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, so it was a very, very difficult story. It's an interesting point that you make there regarding the reputation of Aung San Suu Kyi and what a difficult thing that's been for the international community to conceptualise that th- that she let us down. Was yes, let down maybe a mild word, because you know in my youth I used to go on demonstrations for her, and I was part of a group of people in Sri Lanka who organised Sri Lanka's parliament to pass a resolution asking for her to be released from house arrest. So we all mobilized for her. She, you know, Nelson Mandela, Aung San Suu Kyi, these, are, these were untouchable figures in our life. And then when I saw her going to uh, The Hague and actually contesting genocide and contesting that anything happened, it was a, an extraordinary moment to realize that, you know, that that, that could even happen. Given what she has gone through by the same military, It is. I I spent a few weeks working in Myanmar last year and something that really surprised me is it seemed to me in the conversations I had with taxi drivers and people in the markets and people at hotels is that there is a really widespread um, fear and distrust of the Rohingya and it seemed to me that much of civil society, at least that I was engaging with, were tacitly, if not quite, Um, actively supporting what was happening to the Rohingya. I mean, that's so much deeper than solving a humanitarian crisis. That that gets to the heart of what society is made up of. Well, I think to some extent you have to also then understand where they're coming from. And I think first, you know, I was looking at the statistics and actually Buddhists are only 6 or 7% of the world's population, you know, so, so I think they already feel deeply outnumbered and and I think they have, throughout history, felt that um, they have been overtaken by the other outsiders. This whole cycle with the Rohingyas only plays into their deepest fears. So how do you deal with that? Do you, as an international community, understand those deepest fears and therefore lessen your standards and uh, lessen accountability for the Rohingyas because you have to understand those fears? Then how do you? How does how? What do the Rohingyas do? How, you know, what is their sense of justice for what they have done? So I think we have to stick, especially when it comes to issues that look like they're genocide. We cannot give in to kind of people's complete fears. We have to, you know, draw the bottom line. I think in other ways one can perhaps deal with it through dialogue. I think the only way to deal with deep fears is through dialogue, uh, and I think uh, that has to happen. But they must agree to dialogue with Rohingya leaders and others, but they don't see them as Myanmarese or anything like that. But I think the dialogue to address their deepest fears should always be there. Uh, But I think when it comes to genocide-like violence, you have to draw the bottom line. We can't use fear as an excuse. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and it's, it's interesting to hear of the importance of dialogue. And I guess, you know, when dialogue does occur, it is a cause for optimism. It is an encouraging sign to see. Um, how, how do you remain optimistic about the future when, when you're visiting places like Myanmar and other war zones and, you, and you're seeing these really harrowing scenes? How do you remain optimistic? Well, Cox Mazar, not so much, but in other areas, the amazing people you meet in these situations, people who've gone through the worst that you couldn't even dream of going through, and then having the energy to organize, to speak out, to laugh, and to uh, discuss matters with you. That's when you also put your whole life in perspective. What are those minor little problems that you have in comparison to what these people face. So that's what gives me hope, that throughout it all, people really seem to come out of it uh, in some way. You know, even in Cox Bazaar, um, people are beginning to organize, getting themselves together. It's, I mean, it's nothing. I'm not saying anything is all better. But you can see life in the people again. When we went immediately after, the, you know, they were completely paralyzed. They couldn't talk, literally. But now they're beginning to talk and organize a little bit. But you're worried too much of too much organization and are they going to become extremists? So there's always that fear. If you leave people in this kind of condition for long, extremism can survive. I mean, Palestinian camps are an example. Uh, so there is that fear overhanging. That's right. When I read that piece on that young man, I said he was just like low-hanging fruit for anybody to come and pick up. Uh, but still... The fact that people emerge are resilient. The stories of people you meet even now, because I do work on these issues, people I will meet uh, somewhere, I will say they are of this community and they read about, and, you know, they have gone without anything to maybe the Europe or to America or to Australia. And why well, the taxi man who brought me here, he was in Christmas Island. He said he... Uh, was uh, an Afghan refugee, and he was terrified of the Taliban that they would recruit him or kill him. So he took a boat, came to Christmas Island, now he's out, and now he's an Uber driver. And he looked quite happy with life. And he said none of his family came with him, but he's settled here, and he's quite happy. Uh, so there you go. Well, won't that make one have hope for the future? Yeah. I wonder if he knew who he was speaking to. No, he didn't know who I was at all. He must have thought I was a housewife from Sri Lanka. <laughs> wow, that's that's really nice. You know, we see that domestically here in Australia with the summer that we've just had, but also, as you say, it's a trend worldwide that terrible humanitarian circumstances can often bring out the best in people, and that's a cause for optimism. Is there any parting comments you'd like to make before we wrap up on the women, peace and security agenda or anything you'd like our listeners to, to check out? Well, I think we just have to realize one thing, uh, and this is what I worry, that as women, peace and security leaves its roots, it becomes an agenda on itself. And sometimes I fear it's losing its human rights humanism, humanitarian origins. You can fight for things not realizing that was the origin. So that's the spirit in which this agenda should be moved forward. Whatever we push for must be located within that spirit of humanism, which was really what brought people from all over the world together to fight for it. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. 
that's it for episode 70. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. This is Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. We'll see you next week. <laughs>